Rico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And now for today's environmental news brief. From WFHB, this is your environmental news brief for Thursday, February 17th. I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Late last month, police investigated the conditions at an alpaca farm near Owen County, Indiana, and discovered multiple malnourished animals, including horses, chickens, dogs, and alpacas. Overall, there were a total of 28 dead alpacas found on the property. The Indiana State Board on Animal Health sent a registered veterinarian to find out what the conditions were like on the farm, and the veterinarian found them to be unacceptable thus causing the police to get involved. Supaca Farms LLC had never been under any scrutiny previously and it is currently not understood how conditions got so bad on the farm. The Owen County prosecutor is looking over the medical records and police reports before determining whether criminal charges should be pursued. Cleveland Cliffs, the owner of the steelmaker ArcelorMittal plant along a tributary of Lake Michigan, must pay $3 million for the environmental damages done when the plant dispelled millions of gallons of cyanide-laden wastewater into a nearby river. The contamination resulted in 3,000 dead fish floating along the river, caused a shutdown of all public beaches including the Indiana Dunes, and closed the nearby water treatment plant, thus directly affecting the drinking water supply. The plant had previously violated environmental laws over 100 times, it did not notify environmental agencies when the cyanide, with an estimated amount of 25 times the permitted levels, was sent into the environment. Activists believe that this will send a message to big polluters to be more careful about what they are pouring into our states, lakes, and rivers. A brand new discovery has brought excitement for the world's understanding of marine ecosystems. Oceanographers found a pristine coral reef off the coast of the island of Tahiti that had never been seen before. Surprisingly, the reef has been completely unaffected by human activity, including from sources such as pollution or ocean acidification. Scientists are rejoicing because of how important coral reefs are to oceans, as they are home to a quarter of all marine species, and without them, many would go extinct. Similarly, humans depend on the reefs for food and income, with reefs contributing billions of dollars to economies around the world. This discovery has encouraged researchers to continue searching in unlikely places to find even more hidden reefs. That's all for Environmental News Brief. For WFHP, I'm Nathaniel Weinzaffel.
In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald speaks with Watershed Coordinator Maggie Sullivan and Limonol researcher Sarah Powers about issues with the Lake Monroe Reservoir. That's coming up later in the program. Sunrise Bloomington is a grassroots organization dedicated to securing IU's divestment from fossil fuels as part of a national and global shift toward climate-safe energy alternatives. On February 9th, the organization, along with the IU student government, Students for a Green World, and other student groups, met with IU President Pamela Witten, Vice President of Capital Planning and Facilities Tom Morrison, and IU Foundation President J.T. Forbes to discuss divestment from fossil fuels, among other action steps to decrease the university's role in exacerbating the climate crisis. When asked by Sunrise Bloomington whether the IU Foundation plans to divest from fossil fuels, Forbes didn't comment. He responded to requests to continue dialogue on the issue of fossil fuel divestment by stating that he and the IU Foundation would discuss the issue only if Sunrise collaborated with student and faculty governance. Since 2014, the student and faculty governments have passed resolutions asking the IU Foundation to divest with no response from the Foundation. IU student government, also in attendance, presented its climate action plan, which includes fossil fuel divestment as a core tenant. Forbes didn't commit to scheduling another meeting with Sunrise or other students. President Witten emphasized the students' and faculty's personal responsibility to reduce university carbon emissions, but didn't commit to supporting fossil fuel divestment, carbon neutrality, or transitioning university fuel sources to 100% renewable energy. The opinion piece that follows was written by Wendy Brehold, representative of the Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign in Indiana and Kentucky. Ms. Brehold is a contributing author of Growing Good, A Beginner's Guide to Cultivating Caring Communities, published by IU Press. Indiana legislators are putting Hoosiers on a dangerous path, refusing to listen to urgent concerns about climate change and the need for greater access to renewable energy. Instead, they are pursuing false, dangerous, and expensive schemes on behalf of special interest. While this is nothing new at the legislature, the passage of time has required more urgent action. The climate crisis has reached code red for humanity, according to the latest United Nations climate report. Climate change is already resulting in increased extreme rain events, reduced agricultural production, and more intense droughts and heat waves in Indiana, according to Purdue University. Confront the Climate Crisis, a high school student-led statewide group spent months gathering support for legislative climate action from public officials, a coalition of 80 organizations and Hoosiers from across the state. They collected nearly 20,000 signatures on a petition calling for climate legislation and worked to get it introduced by senators and representatives from both sides of the aisle. But their bills were never granted a hearing. Meanwhile, the chair of the so-called 21st Century Energy Policy Task Force refuses to allow any discussion of climate change. Yet, when special interests representing fossil fuels and the nuclear industry come knocking, legislators are all ears. In this 2022 legislative le session, legislators have refused to hear SB 255, 
which would have established a Climate and Environmental Justice Task Force, SCR 3, a resolution acknowledging the impacts of climate change. HB 1287 would have created a Climate Change Commission. SB 248 and HB 1304 are bills that would have restored fair credit for extra electricity generated by Hoosiers on rooftop solar panels. SB 314 and HB 1136 are bills that would have extended net metering. SB 313 and HB 1250 would have required monopoly utilities to build and provide access to community solar projects. And HB 1335 or SB 412 would have cleaned up toxic coal ash pits that pollute our drinking water and groundwater. All of these bills confront real climate change impacts, propose equitable actions, and offer true climate solutions for our communities. Instead, legislative leaders are moving bills that offer false climate solutions on behalf of special interests like BP, Wabash Valley Resources, so-called Reliable Energy, the former Indiana Coal Council, and the nuclear industry. SB 265 and HB 1249 provide the special privilege of near-blanket immunity from any damage caused by Wabash Valley Resources' plan to dump carbon dioxide emissions into the ground, relieving them of important risks to neighboring residents and businesses. HB 1209 paves the way for unproven carbon sequestration from new industrial sources of emissions throughout the state. SB 271 puts the financial burden of expensive, unproven nuclear reactors on utility customers even before they are built and producing electricity. HB 1100 limits the flexibility of state agencies like IDEM and DNR to adopt any regulatory protections more stringent than those at the federal level. These bills benefit only special interests and the legislators who do their bidding in exchange for our health, environment, financial security, and collective futures. Legislators have the tools at hand to respond to climate change and empower Hoosiers to support climate solutions, reinstate fair net metering, reinstitute energy efficiency programs, incentivize commercial scale renewable energy, provide funds for impacted coal communities, and pass energy policy that accelerates the transition from fossil fuels to sustainable energy resources. As one of the worst states in the U.S. for carbon pollution, Indiana has a critical role to play in creating climate solutions. We can avoid the worsening impacts of climate change on our communities and our collective futures with cleaner air and water and lower energy costs. We can generate our own energy and take back power from monopoly utilities. We can ensure that the energy transition is an equitable one that benefits everyday Hoosiers and not just special interests. A bill to ensure that Nebraska ethanol plants can qualify for state tax incentives for building carbon capture facilities is running into opposition from a leading environmental group. The Indiana legislator is advocating a similar situation. A representative from the environmental group Bold Alliance testified at a legislative hearing Wednesday that it is unnecessary to provide tax breaks for projects that are already planned in the state and that such CO2 pipelines are risky and subject to no state regulation. Advocates for the tax breaks said building carbon storage facilities will help the state's ethanol industry attain a greener rating 
which will improve sales to states like California and Oregon that are seeking more environmentally friendly fuels. What the legislators are counting on is financial support that will cover the cost of sequestering carbon dioxide and delivering it to underground storage. The plans give little in the way of assessment of earthquakes caused by underground storage. Judge Rudolph Contreras voided oil and gas leases on over 80 million acres in the Gulf of Mexico, stating that the Interior Department, quote, acted arbitrarily and capriciously in excluding foreign consumption from their greenhouse gas emissions, end quote, and thus neglected to consider the significant climate impact of such leases. Judge Contreras said the Interior Department was required to consider those climate impacts under the 1970 National Environmental Policy Act. Over a billion barrels of oil could have been produced from the leases. Not only the climate would have suffered, but further oil and gas drilling would invite destruction for Gulf Coast communities already experiencing rising temperature, flooding, and pollution. Earth Justice, a nonprofit environmental law firm whose lawsuit led to the judge's ruling, called this win, quote, monumental, end quote, and pointed out that this was the first time a court has ever vacated a lease sale in the Gulf of Mexico. Earth Justice also noted that this victory sets up an important decision and test for the Biden administration by requiring the Interior Department to consider the climate effects of oil drilling in the Gulf before it decides to offer any more leases. The Biden administration's next move will test its commitment to action on the climate crisis after its pledge to address the crisis. And now for our feature, WFHB correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald has a report about issues with the Lake Monroe Reservoir. Recently, there have been complaints from Monroe County residents regarding the foul taste of tap water within their homes. The main reservoir for Bloomington and Monroe County is Lake Monroe, which is a common source for recreational activities for members of the Bloomington community. To learn more about this issue with the lake, WFHB News spoke with Sarah Powers, a liminal scientist at Indiana University. The amount of cyanobacteria in the lake has been pretty constant over time. So it's not a new issue that we're seeing. Due to nutrient inputs from the watershed is a primary source of where that's coming from, as well as nutrients in the lake and in the sediments. You're going to have background nutrients there. We'll feed the algae. And the algae is completely including the cyanobacteria, which are actually a photosynthetic bacteria, not necessarily an algae per se, uh, but we kind of loop them all in together. But they're a natural part of the food chain. So they should be there. And they're very healthy and good. It's good to have a nice, diverse community of algae. They're the basis of the food chain. Very critical. It's just when we the nutrients start to exceed some point, they can grow in overabundance. And as we're seeing warmer temperatures, warmer temperatures later into the summer, we're starting to increase the amount of total algae. With many local complaints regarding the tap water in Bloomington, watershed experts and professionals, including Sarah Powers, set out to Lake Monroe to test its waters for what might be the source of this issue. From what the data could find, the lake and its watershed have been experiencing larger algal blooms in its waters since September of 2021, likely causing the foul taste in its tap water. Sarah Powers elaborates on how she and her team obtained this data and what it means for the lake. 
So we sampled in the lake in the summer of 2020. We also did stream monitoring into the lake for once a month for a year. So that was our portion. And then we also coordinated a volunteer uh, sample blitz for citizen scientists to come out and sample 125 stream sites throughout the watershed. That provided the background data so that they could find... So in order to write the management plan, you need the data to support it. So what is the state of the lake? Then the watershed coordinator, Maggie Sullivan, did a lot of data analysis of it. So she went back and she compared it to historical reports. She found all the historical data that existed as much as she could gather and then did a lot of comparison analysis from past summaries. How has it changed? And I don't think they found a huge amount of change over time. But there are still potential issues in those areas to improve. While this doesn't make the drinking water toxic or harmful, it still presents an issue for the residents who perhaps can't afford to have their water filtered, or those who would be forced to purchase bottled water, which is less heavily regulated by the EPA, instead of utilizing their home's tap water. The algal bacteria found in Lake Monroe is what is known as cyanobacteria, According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, also known as the EPA, cyanobacteria is a microorganism, also known as blue-green algae, found in freshwater ecosystems that can produce harmful algal blooms or toxins. They have the ability to harm aquatic ecosystems, drinking water supply, and people who come in close contact via recreational activities such as swimming or fishing. Sarah Powers further explains why this form of cyanobacteria is posing a threat to Lake Monroe's reservoir and watershed. As we see increases in temperature, longer summers, fluctuations in the amount of rainfall, it changes the amount of algae and when we're seeing more. So now we're seeing it later into the growing season. Historically, it was more of a July-August problem. Now it's lingering into September-October, right, where we're seeing longer blooms. Luckily, Friends of Lake Monroe, a local nonprofit dedicated to the protection of the lake, has developed a management plan to address the issue of growing cyanobacteria in Lake Monroe. This management plan is a long-term goal to prevent the lake from producing any excess algae, and so it can continue to keep Livington's water source clean and healthy. Because of the nature of this plan and the lake, this plan won't see any noticeable changes for at least a decade or so. Watershed coordinator Maggie Sullivan and her team at Friends of Lake Monroe created this watershed management plan in which she expands on in more detail. So I work for Friends of Lake Monroe, the local nonprofit, and we've been working for the last two years to develop a watershed management plan for the lake. There wasn't one before this, and we got a grant to do it, and part of it was doing a lot of water quality monitoring and collecting samples. It was also talking with the community to see what people's concerns were, looking at other available data, um, actually getting out in the watershed and looking to see what the streams look like that are coming into the lake. So we gathered all that data together and created this watershed management plan that lays out a 20-year action plan for how do we protect and improve water quality in the lake. And one of the things that was driving this process of why we felt this was important is the increasing occurrence of harmful algal blooms. 
Because the city of Bloomington has not declared any official warning regarding the algal blooms in Lake Monroe, one can assume that these blooms have not reached the toxicity levels required to be harmful in the city's drinking water supply. Unfortunately, there isn't much the city of Bloomington can do in terms of policy or legislation, simply due to the fact that Lake Monroe Watershed does not fall completely within Monroe County lines. It actually falls within four other county lines as well, making it difficult for local governments to mandate any sort of legislation over the watershed. Maggie Sullivan explains the nuances of these county lines and how that affects local and state legislation. One of the challenges of watershed work is that watersheds span multiple jurisdictions. So the Lake Monroe watershed is 440 square miles, and about half of that's in Brown County. Then there's about a quarter in Monroe and about a quarter in Jackson. Okay. So we're already talking about three different counties involved. And then we have the town of Nashville. We have part of the city of Bloomington. And then we start looking at who owns the land. And there's a lot of it that's owned by the U.S. Forest Service or the Indiana State Department of Natural Resources or the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who owns the actual lake. And so you're talking about a lot of different groups that have jurisdiction. So one of our goals is to get them all collaborating together and saying, here, we have this plan now. We know what we need to do. So let's work together to make that happen. We haven't identified specific policy changes yet, but that is one possibility. I know Monroe County is updating their development ordinances right now. And they have specific protections for watersheds. The ecozone, so around Lake Monroe, Lake Griffey, and Lake Lemon, have a little more restrictions on how you can develop to try and reduce the likelihood of getting that sediment and those nutrients into the lakes. While these algal blooms have not greatly impacted the reservoir yet, especially during the winter months, this begs the question of whether these blooms will become more toxic or will this cause the lake to further eutrophy? Maggie Sullivan explains the science behind this question and what it means for Lake Monroe. So Lake Monroe is mildly eutrophic right now. If we don't do anything, there's a chance it could get more eutrophic, meaning as higher nutrient levels and more common harmful algal blooms. So our goal is to reduce the nutrient load, and we would expect to see less harmful algal blooms once we do that. With the caveat that that's a long-term process, Partly because making changes in the watershed to reduce the nutrient levels takes a lot of time and effort in getting people to change behaviors. And partly because we also know there are legacy nutrients in the lake. And those are nutrients that are down in the sediments at the bottom of the lake that have accumulated over time. And so those could still be released, as I was talking about with the lake stratification, when oxygen levels drop at the bottom of the lake bacteria will release some of those nutrients and then they'll circulate back into the water. While the cyanobacteria in Lake Monroe is cause for concern, we still have organizations like Friends of Lake Monroe and wonderful scientists like Sarah Powers willing to help the Bloomington community and make our city a safer place for everybody here. If you'd like more information on Friends of Lake Monroe, please go to their website at friendsoflakemonroe.org. For WFHB News, I am Sophia Fitzgerald. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. 
We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. Springvale State Park will host a full snow moon hike on Friday, February 18th from 8 to 9 p.m. Meet Anthony at the Spring Mill Inn front patio for a fun nighttime hike and learn the history and folklore of the full snow moon. This is a one-mile hike that is partially rugged. Learn about snake lore and mythology from around the world at McCormick's Creek State Park on Friday, February 18th from 2 to 3 p.m. Even though snakes are not slithering around during the winter, they are still present in our lives. Meet at the Nature Center to find out more about the fascination people have for these mysterious creatures. This is an indoor event. Please wear a mask. Brown County State Park continues its winter hike series with a one-and-a-half-mile round-trip hike to the site of the Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, camp area on Saturday, February the 19th from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. The trail can be rugged in places. You will learn about the CCC and what they did and all about the Deserters Cave. This is a fun hike. The Nebo Ridge Trail Hike will be the next winter exploration hike at Monroe Lake on Tuesday, February 22nd from 10 a.m. to noon. This will be an exploratory off-trail hike with no set path. The terrain may be rugged and there are no toilet facilities. Please dress for the weather. Register by February 20th at bit period ly slash weh hyphen feb 22 hyphen 2022. It's that time of year when the sap is starting to flow. Take a maple syrup made easy hands-on workshop at the RCA Community Park Small Shelter on Saturday, February 26th from noon to 1.30 p.m. Learn tree identification, equipment, collection, and sugaring techniques. The program is held outdoors, so dress accordingly. Register by February 22nd at bloomington.in.gov parks. And that wraps up our show for this week. EcoReport is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar-powered generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. Today's news brief was produced by WFHB reporter Nathaniel Weinzaffel. Today's feature was produced by WFHB correspondent Sophia Fitzgerald. Juliana Daly assembled the script and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Patrick Callanan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I am Cynthia Roberts. And this is Ego Report. 
You've been listening to The Eco Report. A volunteer-powered production of Community Radio WFHB. In Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.